0: into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Charlotte Wood, author of the novel, The Weekend. I realized that because my parents
1: both died in their 50s, I had always matched my life expectancy to their life expectancy. So I just thought I'll be dead by 60.
0: We'll be back with Charlotte Wood after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Australian writer Charlotte Wood, who is the author of six novels and three books of nonfiction. Her novels include The Children, The Natural Way of Things, and Animal People, among others. Her new book on creativity is called The Luminous Solution. In 2019, she was named one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. Her features and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Literary Hub, and the Sydney Morning Herald, among others. She hosts an occasional podcast called The Writer's Room with Charlotte Wood, in which she interviews authors, critics, and artists about the creative process. She lives in Sydney. Her latest book to be published in the U.S. is The Weekend, which tells the story of three women in their 70s reuniting at their late friend's beach house to clean it out. With the death of their friend Sylvie, who kept the foursome together, the three remaining friends must face themselves and one another in ways they've avoided for decades. The weekend explores what it means for these women to grow old and how their friendships endure and are challenged when they are forced to face one another in close quarters. We began the discussion with Charlotte Wood talking about her journey of becoming a writer, which began for her as a journalist until she faced a life-changing loss.
1: My mother died when I was 29, and my dad had already died when I was 19. And I was struck by sudden separation of life into things that mattered and things that didn't matter. And I suddenly knew that writing mattered to me. And I really wanted to try it and commit to it and and do something, you know, with it in a serious way rather than just, um, you know, dabbling as I had done before. Um, But when I look back, I I remember uh, um, Edna O'Brien's remark that people become writers because they have an intensity of feeling that normal life cannot accommodate. And I think the fact of my parents' deaths, you know, when I was relatively young, gave me an intensity of feeling that I had nowhere to take. I didn't even know what I felt, you know, but I, but I had this sort of very cloudy emotions and I I didn't write about that, but it, but I wrote stuff that had that kind of freight, I guess, with it.
0: Mm. I have tears in my eyes. That's such a beautiful quote. I've never heard that before.
1: Yeah. It was in her Paris Review interview, many you know, decades and decades ago.
0: So I'm wondering if if that loss converged with this idea, because you said earlier that you didn't have anything to say. Did that experiencing that loss sort of switch that for you? I think it did, but in a very unconscious kind of way.
1: So, you know, I think it was Flaubert who said, fiction is a response to a deep and always hidden wound. And I, I you know, I, I had that wound from that loss. But, and I think saying that fiction was a response to that is right. I, as I said, I didn't write about that, but I think there were kind of metaphorical uh, echoes of of that loss in the stuff that I was writing when I first began.
0: So with The weekend, I mean, it's clear from the subject what you were thinking about and we'll get into, into it in a minute, but was there something bubbling in you that you really wanted to say with this book that you had been mulling over for a while? Like how did you come to, to the weekend?
1: So the weekend was a book I wrote almost in reaction against the book that I had written just before that, which was called the natural way of things, which was about, a group of young women sort of held captive in this brutal place. In It was kind of slightly surreal, um, kind of stylized, fairly brutal kind of story about misogyny, basically. Um, and after I wrote that book, and it, it had a big response here in Australia, and it was the first book of mine to be published internationally. And so I spent a lot of time talking about that book and the sort of the material of it which was a pretty heavy thing to be carrying around for, you know, a number of years. And so I wanted to write a book that was funny, that had lightness to it while not being, you know, uh, trivial, I guess. And there was one other thing that I, again, I kind of discovered this, or oh, I realised this only after some time, which was that because, for so The Weekend is a book about uh, three older women in their 70s, Navigating their friendship after the death of their very close fourth friend. And I realized that because my parents both died in their 50s, I had always matched my life expectancy to their life expectancy. So I just thought, I'll be dead by 60, you know. And I I didn't think it that consciously, but I think a lot of people do that, you know, about they sort of think, oh, my parents died at 70. That's around the time, you know, that's my. Life, my longevity to to come, and because I'd always thought, well, I'll be dead. <laughs> um, I had never ever ever once thought about well, what it might be like for me to grow old. And it suddenly struck me that you know I'm now three years older than my dad was when he died, and a couple of years younger than my mum was. And you know, of course, I hope that I don't die in my fifties. But it struck me that, wow, well, what if I don't die young? what will that be like, you know? And so, so there was that question of what kind of older woman might I become? The second question was, is it possible to have a, 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 a thriving, flourishing friendship for 40 or 50 years? And I'm really interested in that question. Because I think a lot of the time our, our oldest friends are very dear to us, but we can sort of allow that relationship to kind of set in concrete a little we can allow it to calcify and just sort of um, become, you know, a very loyal and loving thing, but not a, not as alive as when we first met. So I was interested in whether that's possible as well. So those things sort of came together in the beginning of writing The weekend.
0: Do you think it's possible? I
1: hope it is. I think it is. I think it is, but maybe you have to be really conscious of it. I don't think it happens by itself, right? Because I think and one of the one of the things that the women in in the weekend are grappling with is is allowing each other to change and be um be different from what they were when they first met and i think when we see our our closest friends changing sometimes we find that very threatening we think they're kind of leaving us in some psychic way or we can think i know you you're not you know you're not like this in your sort of putting on airs and graces or you're trying to be something that you're not, but I know who you are. And I think it's really important to allow our friends to change. And I think that's hard. I think it's hard. Even if we, we ourselves want to change, we may not want other people to change.
0: Yeah. So your characters, your main characters are Jude Adele and Wendy and Sylvie is their friend who died and Jude, she didn't want to grow old. She didn't really like the elderly. She was probably like the most buttoned up of the group. She just couldn't let go. Odell is an older, you know, they're all in their 70s. She was beautiful. She has very perky breasts. She is an actress and she just hasn't had good luck with parts lately. So money is an issue. Her relationship is ending. And so she's kind of going to this weekend to where they're going to clean up their, their friend Sylvie's house. Um, on the edge of, of a lot of desperation and then Wendy is she's lived the life of an intellectual the life of a mind she had a happy marriage she was in love she has two kids and she's I wouldn't say estranged from them necessarily but she's not close to them and she brings um, her dog who who I consider to be really the main character of the book whose name is Finn mm-hmm. who is 17. He's a labradoodle, he's very old, and he's he's dying. And uh, her friends think that she's probably kept him alone too long. And they, they all met in university. And, and one line you, you wrote about when they met, this was Adele, I think, was thinking back to how they met and couldn't even quite remember, which is um, has a loveliness to itself. But you wrote, one by one, they were drawn into the current of others, and they fell in love and stayed there. And that that kind of friendship for that long is like falling in love.
1: Yeah. And and especially at the beginning, you know, they, they actually, some of them met at university, but as a kind of bigger group, they met in their 30s. And Adele, I think, says the 30s was when you fell most dangerously in love with your friends. And I think that perhaps was true for me, where you sort of feel like you know who you are and you have found the right people for you. It's not just, you know, you met them at university or they were your you know classmates at school or something. You kind of find your tribe. And for these women who were very powerful in their, in their younger years, sort of early feminists who achieved great things. Jude ran the city's finest restaurants. Adele was this sort of shining theatre actress. Um, and Wendy, as you said, was very public intellectual, very um, highly regarded and so they they had this kind of dazzling little crew um with their partners at the time and so on um and they they fell in love and i guess now they're grappling with um a whole heap of things they're grappling with the fact that while they while they are in their 70s they're not interested in the subject of age or ageing, and they kind of, um, you know, really dismiss people who talk about ailments and doctors and they just can't stand that sort of thing. Uh, but they're also grappling with retirement, I guess, uh, in a way that they, they think they still have plenty to offer professionally. They, it's only really just dawning on them that the culture is actually, you know, slowly pushing them out but they still feel like they've got things to say. They have they have talents that perhaps are you know they they're at their peak of their power, but they it's just dawning on them that other people don't feel that way about them anymore, and it's very painful. There's a lot of grief involved in that for them.
0: One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book and their friendship was that they, I mean, it was clear they loved each other and had really complicated and and deep bonds like. The interweaving of the four, like one, maybe two were closer in a certain way and two were closer in another way, but they were also like frenemies. Like they were so hard Mm. on each other and sometimes like mean and curious, but also like that was allowed within their tribe. But if you are from the outside and you're mean to one of us, the wrath will come down on you. Mm.
1: Yeah. You know, when I started writing this book, I was, my mother-in-law was still alive, Annie, who was a very powerful character person. And she, I used to watch her with some of her friends and they'd been friends for 50 years. And sometimes I was kind of a little freaked out at the way they would speak to each other in this. And, you know, I realized, well, they're sisters now, you know, they've, they've been friends for so long. They are basically family and, I think we all, you know, all of us who have siblings can see ourselves sometimes just, just cutting to the chase. You know, Don't we don't sort of muck around with all the niceties that perhaps you would with someone you just met. So, you and, you know, I, I took to watching groups of older women in, you know, in the art gallery I go to or um, in restaurants and things. And sometimes older women can be really brutal to each other. But it's almost like they they possess each other, these groups of women, um, in a way that is full of love, but it also um, they they can be too harsh, you know, they can be, they can snap at each other and they can be, and I, you know, I have this with some of my friends, and what I love about my friends is they would tell me the truth. You know, they won't flatter me. They will and they'll if I'm going on too long with some story, they'll butt in and say, Yeah, 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 we know that, you know. So I love that about my friends. But I know that I need to be careful as I get older that that you don't solidify into that kind of um, you know, that level of of losing gentleness, I guess, or losing respect, which which can happen.
0: Yeah, it must have been kind of fun to write all those these scenes between them when they're like bickering or so much in their own head about what another one is doing, like just going off on their own internal monologue?
1: Yeah, I had a great time with this one, with a sort of shifting point of view, a really fluid shifting point of view. And I hadn't really done that in my previous, this was my sixth novel. And I really wanted to have a lot more movement between different characters' heads in kind of one scene, you know, which is something you're always told not to, never to do in creative writing classes and stuff, which just, of course, makes you want to go and do it. So I guess one of the themes that developed in the book that I realised, you know, at a later stage was, was whether we actually ever really know ourselves. And I think these women at this stage of life feel very strongly that I know myself, I know who I am, I know my place in the world. But this weekend that they spend together really unravels that they they are all faced with a a kind of big truth about themselves that they have to stand up to you know they have to face up to but that shifting point of view allowed me to to show how they because of Sylvie's death they're kind of lost to one another now Um, because she was the glue that sort of held them all together. She was the one who could smooth over the prickly edges. She could interpret their behaviour to each other. You know, if one was being annoying, another one would say to Sylvie, why is she doing that? And Sylvie would say, no, well, don't worry, it's because blah, blah. And things would sort of flow more evenly. But now that Sylvie has gone, there's this huge gap in their lives and they're all in grief. So, um, you know, I don't know about you, but... When I've been, at times of grief, you do lose patience with things that you think are, you know, trivial or silly. Um, and they all feel quite protective of their each of their private relationships with Sylvie. You know, I think each of them privately, secretly feels like I was her best friend, really. Um, but they all feel that way. And um, so this shifting point of view allowed me to show... I hope in a kind of poignant way that they're they're trying to understand each other, but they just keep slipping, you know, just before they make that connection.
0: I wanted to ask you about this shifting point of view because it's so fluid. Like, you could be on a page, like open to two pages, and you might have almost three of the interior lives of these characters, and it just flows. There's not really... I mean, some, you know, you have white, a little bit of white space, but it's not like you are completely alerted that you're going into a new mind. So I'm wondering how you, how you sort of regulated this and how you wrote it. It was a good challenge for me. Um,
1: And usually when I, when I write a book, I like to have some kind of technical thing that I need to try and master or learn as I write it as well as you know the interest in the the subject matter and that kind of stuff but I like so that so that for me was the technical sort of challenge in this book Um, and there were there were things that are in the revision that needed to be clarified and I think I think most of the time when there is a, a point of view switch there's some identifying thing that comes in very quickly either the woman's name or something she's wearing or you know that that you you don't get lost in that and I hope that you don't get lost as a reader but um and also because they're all they're always observing each other very very closely um so that allows you to see which one's talking as well because they're talking about the other you know in in their mind they're looking at the other two and speaking about them um how I wrote it in in pieces, the way I write everything, you know, in in sort of little individual scenes that are most often not related for a really long time. There's no chronology. I mean, I guess I had I had the setup of of three days and and it's set uh, just before Christmas, which in Australia, of course, is in at the height of summer. So and it's the beginning of our big summer holiday. So um, Christmas here is a kind of heightened time um emotionally for a lot of people um maybe kind of like your thanksgiving a little and i know you have christmas too obviously but um it's it's the time when families normally get together even if they don't really want to um it's the time when to be alone is quite stressful even though lots of people actually really desperately want to be alone. so there's all this um the freight of the holiday also, um, you know, taking taking its toll as well. Um, but also the house became important. And of course the dog Finn, as you mentioned, um, trapping them in this house together was very useful for me. And they had to be there to clean out the house for sale. It was Sylvie's beach house where they've all been, you know, so many times with her and without her uh, over the years. And Sylvie's girlfriend has left and moved back to Ireland. And so they've charged with doing this, you know, cleaning out this place full of, you know, old stuff and junk and, um, you know, expired food cans. And, and that also allowed me to, to establish some, you know, just a kind of rolling conflict <laughs> between them about how, and Jude, of course, is the boss. They call her the boss. She's quite, she's highly organised, she's very exacting, um, she's quite controlling, but there's a whole hidden part of her that, that nobody ever really sees. Um, she has a, a hidden love affair with a married man that she has had for 40 years. Um, and so they, they each have these unspoken sides of themselves that they're playing out together while they're trapped in this, house on a very hot weekend just before Christmas. So it was, it was useful to me to kind of keep ramping up the tension from a whole lot of different angles.
0: I know it must be so hard to even talk about it when you were writing back when you were writing, because it was a while ago and because it's like, there's something about the process that's probably, you just can't articulate, but like writing these little sections for each character Did you understand the through line? Like, did you understand the glue that would bring them together in a flow?
1: Not for a long time. And that's a very anxiety-provoking way of working, but it's kind of the only way that I seem to be able to work. And every time I write a book, I wish that it were otherwise. But look, I knew I wanted to write about friendship. I knew I wanted to write about long friendship. Therefore, they had to be older women. I knew I wanted to write something with a lot of humour in it. And I hope that, you know, quite a lot of the book is funny, even though there are some pretty serious um, themes and 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 moments between them. Um, so for, for a long time, I had them all in this holiday house, sort of just snapping at each other, but without any reason to be there, apart from the fact that they were friends. And, you know, and it really caused a lot of, trouble they their friend Sylvie had died I knew that um, but I didn't have a reason for you know I kept thinking well if they're so you know snappy with each other why are they even there and it took me you know a couple of years to realize oh this is Sylvie's house they're in so it suddenly had had a reason for them to be there they felt compelled by duty and friendship to be there to do it together even though you know they had all these kind of issues with each other so that I guess is an example of how things can come really late in the piece that are actually essential (laughs) to let to make the book work which you know causes a lot of anxiety (laughs) for for the writer and you know I know lots of people would never work that way but I also know a lot of writers do work that way you just do it however you can make it work I think
0: yeah, and I think, like, embracing that, like, even if you have to, like, live through the anxiety and you can't sleep and you're thinking, well, maybe I should have gone to med school, um, that if that is your process or how your brain works, like, the only thing you can do is lean in.
1: And I do think your unconscious is, is guiding you if you let it, you know, and it takes a long time to trust that. It's taken me a very long time to just trust that. The book will show me how to write it. If I just pay attention, if I don't freak out too much, you know if i if I don't resist what's happening as I write too much, um, But it's hard to trust that because also a lot of the time you're throwing stuff away because it's wrong. <laughs> so there's a question of how much do I, go with this material that's just coming out of my fingers as I sit here in the morning. I mean, I, I think the first draft for me is i that's the only thing I can do is just go with it. And then once I get a second draft, I get all this material out. I'm doing it today actually with the novel that I'm working on now, um, print it out and see what the hell is this stuff. And then your kind of logical, rational mind can come in more um forcefully and start shaping and guiding and, you know, selecting and rejecting.
0: So we talked earlier about Finn, who, who is the dog. And I wonder if he was there at the very beginning, but I, I also really want to ask about, you know, writing about this animal and because Finn is so old and sick and dying and the cause of angst between them, because they didn't want Wendy to bring the dog. He also was a symbol for so much. He he caused revelation. He caused fights. He was also, you know, this this icon of of aging and how long do you live? So I just wanted to talk about Finn.
1: Yeah, Finn came again, kind of right in the middle of the of the book in terms of you know the time it took me to write it. And it came about in kind of a strange way. I had a residency at this really very cool science research facility uh, at the University of Sydney and it's called the Charles Perkins Centre and it is a very multidisciplinary kind of radical research place run by an, an amazing scientist called Steve Simpson. And he set this place up it's about the, their kind of mission is to address chronic disease and um, ill health. But Steve's idea of this place is that we need everyone to contribute to to finding new solutions to these really intractable, prob, intractable problems. And he wanted a writer in residence there all the time. So they found a philanthropist to fund this amazing fellowship where all the, your job, your only job is to write your book and hang around in the place and sort of brush up against the scientists and see if anything comes of that. So it's kind of, it gives you enormous freedom um, unlike any other residency I've ever had. And so I was working in this place and I had a conversation with um, an evolutionary biologist and I was talking about something else about aging and and humans. And and he said, um, well, I think you should have some evolutionary biology in this novel. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that's not going to happen. Like I didn't even know what he was talking about, you know. And But because my job there was to, to influence and be influenced, I didn't sort of shut down that conversation as I might ordinarily be sort of really protective and secretive about my work. I was just very open about it. and And so I kept that conversation going. And he said, I think it would be interesting to have an animal in your book because animal aging is far more accelerated than human aging. And maybe there would be something interesting there to think about. And I thought, well, it's actually a really great idea. Um, But I still couldn't really figure out how or why. And then I realized that that at that very time, a good friend of mine's very old dog, whose name was Finn was basically nearing the end of his life and all the, the behaviours that Finn in the, in the book is doing are, are real, you know, what was happening with my friend's dog. And then I thought, oh, my God, this could be so useful, so excellent for bringing in this sort of Finn as a symbol, but not, not a symbol that's equally understood or, you know, received by everybody, that each person in the narrative has their own kind of psychic relationship with this dog, and and Finn is the repository of everyone's kind of feelings about growing old. So Jude of course can't stand having the dog there because he's um messy and unpredictable and you know he's going to pee on the floor and um it's just so she she's the one who really lays it on Wendy about you're just being cruel dragging this dog around you know you should have put yeah, euthanized him it's just your needs over the dogs whereas Wendy thinks well he's just old and he's not in pain he's not suffering this is what happens this is a natural process that happens to dogs and it's going to happen to all of us and that is not the kind of thing that Jude ever wants to hear or think about so um and then Adele has this sort of um a different relationship with Finn who reveals things to her about herself Um, so he became this sort of wandering little you know half ghost half um poignant creature half portent of things to come and then of course I realized that you know an aging old you know decrepit dementing Incontinent dog in a holiday house is a very useful <laughs> driver of friction and conflict and chaos, so he became really important to me. and And it's interesting how many readers just, you know, have have latched onto Finn as as the, the most important thing about the book.
0: Do you think it's the most important thing about the book?
1: What I like about Finn is that he can be this carrier of other layers of meaning. And that is something I kind of always want to have in a book. It was only pointed out to me some years ago that I I tend to have animals all through my books, which is sort of weird that I didn't realise that before. But I think animals are really profound presences in a narrative because we don't know what they're thinking. You know, we like to think we know, but we really don't. They also know a lot of things that we don't know. You know, the animal levels of perception about the world uh, are so heightened but also so mysterious to us that I feel like there's a whole other society going on in the animal world that we you know we think we're at the center of of everything but all around us uh, are creatures with whole other lives so this it's kind of it just allows many many layers of of existence to be hinted at I guess through any any novel
0: I think that idea, too, that we think we're at the center of the universe is that in some ways, of course, we are at the center of our own universe. And you were saying earlier that part of this book was about these women knowing themselves in new ways and maybe crashing against realizations or reckonings that they didn't have in their universe. Like they were just this closed kind of system and through one another or incidences that happened in the book, they did have to have some reckonings and realizations of who they were. And I think, well, first of all, I think this is hard to do in a book and and do it well, but I think it's also like, Sometimes I think people do forget that just because you're in your 70s doesn't mean you're not having like spiritual and personal growth.
1: Yeah, that was really important to me. You know, as soon as I knew I was going to write about older women in what turned out to be in some ways, a kind of cautionary self-portrait, I think it's like, how do I want to be? These are some women who are telling me how I kind of don't want to be. But um, as I looked around at, at representations of older people in in books, in film, and TV, it just didn't ring true to me a lot of the time. About the kind of older people I know, you know, I mentioned my mother-in-law before, but I have I've always had friends who are who are sort of ten and twenty years older than me, so I have really good friends in their seventies now, and. Those people are not necessarily grey-haired. They don't live in the past at all. They're very active politically. They're very active socially. Their inner lives are as flourishing and vibrant as mine, if not a lot more so. Their life isn't over, you know. They're not sitting in a rocking chair thinking about the, the glorious time of their life when they were 25. They're thinking very urgently about the present and the future. Possibly more urgently because they they know that it's not going to last as long as you know for some other people. So I guess I was I wanted to write against the kind of disgust that we have for old age and against the the idea that it's a static period of our lives because I just don't see that and I don't believe it. Or, or no more static than any other period of life. You know, it utterly depends on the individual and and what's important to them.
0: I think too that you can. you can be more unshakable in, in this period of your life because so many things that you fear when you're younger already happened. You already got cancer. You already have experienced death of loved ones. You've already maybe been widowed or had a career crash. Like, it seems like there's less room, although... I'm not saying some of these women don't have it, but there's less room for like a certain kind of vanity and a certain kind of fear about moving forward because so much has happened.
1: Yeah. And that's both a, you know, a great thing and a bit of a trap right, for them because, because they do feel that way and things have happened to them. As you say, you know, Wendy has had a mastectomy so long ago, she barely remembers um, and she survived and it's not, cancer is not a part of her thinking anymore um uh, Adele has had an early marriage where her husband was beating her up and that ended up you know horror badly um she had a brother in jail but these things are all so far in in the past and they're, they're only um kind of referred to very fleetingly you know I don't have lots of you know moments where you know the screen goes wavy and we're thrown back into a long segment about the past because I don't think memory works that way either they're just sort of little recollections that flit through their mind as fast as you know the desire to have a cup of coffee or something they're not thinking a lot about their past but the reader hopefully gathers as time goes on that there's a lot of water under the bridge between these people and they've had a lot of stuff go wrong in their life that they have survived and they don't even feel anything about surviving it's just living they're just keeping on living um even though by the end of the book as you say some of them particularly wendy has to have a bit of a reckoning with um some people who you know namely her kids who she's you know, she has a view of the, the kids that she raised and she gave them all this enormous freedom and she treated them like adults in, the, in that kind of slightly hippie feminist kind of way. Um, and it, you sort of slowly realise that her kids maybe don't feel the same way about their uh, the mothering that she gave them. Um, but there's also her idea of her marriage takes a big hit because she really idealises um, the marriage that she had so that feeling of strength and uh, certainty is also uh, kind of their downfall in some ways. And, and it's that sense of endless renewal that, you know, life is not over until we are dead. There are things to discover about ourselves right up until the moment we die, I think.
0: And I guess that's what I was sort of wanting to play around with. Yeah, and I think some of these ideas you're thinking about um, in a way with rebirth is also recalibrating what you thought was true. So you might have a a vision of your life being a certain way, and then you get a piece of information later that makes you assess everything in a different way. So in a way, you're like living your life twice because you have to see it all over again. And that can be, I mean, so cruel and also really just revelatory about the nature of our human suffering and our time, like how we can grasp for things that we can never really hold.
1: Yes. And so sometimes those, those um, revelations are very shocking to you that, um, and I've had these moments in my life from time to time where I've thought, okay, I know what kind of a person I am, and uh, what my life is about. And then very occasionally, I've received a big shock from and quite often delivered by a friend, who's saying, you're not that kind of person, look at this, and look at this. And that has been profoundly destabilizing. And it's not a bad thing that I had that destabilization. But I now think I will get those shocks through my life, you know, and quite often it will be my friends who deliver those shocks.
0: I mean, it helps you probably as you age understand how the earth beneath us is not as solid as we ever think.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and also that our friends may not be exactly who we think they are. You know, we may be limiting them um, by having this sort of idea that, I know who you are. I know everything about you. You know, after forty years, you know, it's there aren't a lot of things we think that we don't know about someone, but we we really never know that very private inner world that anybody has. Um, and I think people change. You know, there's. I know some people think, well, you don't change essentially, but I think I have the opposite view that people change all the time in in small ways, but also in big ways. I want to be able to change as I grow older and I want to allow other people to change without that meaning that we have to let each other go.
0: I think too, that sort of relates to this sense of uh, thinking that we know people so well that, but yet we don't because because we're always changing and we have to allow that for ourselves and others. And you have a scene in there that's it's small and it's just so intimate, but Adele is in the bathroom and they all have their like toilet bags. And she is looking through each of their bags. And it's such this sort of like kind of naughty, but they're really good friends kind of thing for her to do. But it, it's so intimate, like someone's toilet bag and the medicine they have and the toothpaste they have and whatever else they keep in there. Um, that, that there's always something new to discover about your friends. And I was wondering how you alighted on this idea of writing about this.
1: Well, that scene that you talk about has has caused a lot of amusement among my friends who I have been away, you know, on holidays with. And um, at, at the actually at the launch of this book, I I said in my speech. Now, listen, there's a scene in this book, and I know a lot of you in this room I have been away on weekends with. I promise you, I have never ever looked in your toiletry bag. Um, but yeah, those and I think as we get older, those private things of the body are particularly poignant you know that that each of these women well Adele is very fit and very healthy and sort of frustrated with her friends at being so unfit so because she's an actress her body has always been super important to her she's very proud of her amazing breasts which when she was a younger actress were you know it's the kind of thing in the 70s that people went on about you know in in media stuff about her um but she still feels very proud of her girls you know and what, meanwhile the others are thinking oh god Adele is still behaving like you know she thinks she can get away with her sort of clothes or her swimsuit but so Adele is very fit and healthy but the other two have various little private ailments that they wouldn't necessarily discuss with anybody and they certainly wouldn't be showing Adele the contents of their you know, wash bag um but also that speaks to Adele's character, you know, she's kind of inquisitive, she's curious, she's um, does, is not a great respecter of people's boundaries, um, but that's one of the things that makes her so great, you know, that she's sort of impetuous and and life-loving. Um, and also she thinks, well, we know each other so well, what, what sort of secrets could there be? And meanwhile, she discovers that Jude actually has very nice, expensive cosmetics that she, you know, has a little squirt of her perfume and... Um, so I just, and I just thought that was a funny thing to write about. So I I loved writing that scene.
0: So you had said earlier, you know, you didn't think you'd make it this far and you're in between the age of your parents when they died. What do you think of the fifties? I love the fifties. I was really shocked when I turned
1: 50, the day I turned 50, I had this weird it sounds crazy, but a kind of weird surge of feeling enormously powerful. Um, and feeling kind of surprised that I felt so great. And I was, you know, I think we're we're told by our culture, especially women, that well, post 40 things go downhill and post 50, you know, basically it's all over. And but by the time I was 50, I felt accomplished. I felt I was in exactly the right place in my life. I had a great partner, really good friends. I was writing better than I ever had before. I was financially more stable than I'd ever been, you know, which for a writer is really huge. Um, So I couldn't think of anything that was wrong with my life. And I was astounded that that, um, nobody had told me that the 50s, can be magnificent. I was actually healthier than I'd ever been as well. You know, when I was younger, I smoked and I did no exercise. I ate crap food. So, you know, I feel stronger and fitter and more psychologically healthy in my fifties than I ever, ever was when I was younger.
0: You had an early on, this was uh, Jude's lover who she's been with for 40 years. I think they don't get to spend much time together, like once a year, and his family knows, and it's, I don't know. But we, we learn about him through her brain, and he said um, he was a reader, and his name was Daniel, and you write, uh, Daniel laughed at men who did not read fiction, which is nearly all the men he knew. They were afraid of something in themselves, he said. So I wanted to, to ask you what fiction brings out that we could be afraid of, like the thinking that it involves.
1: Yeah, I, I love slipping that in there. I, you know, I don't know about you, but I often hear a certain kind of man tell me quite proudly that he he doesn't have time to read fiction, but his wife reads a lot of fiction, you know. So my wife has read all your books and the and the the unspoken subtext is, but I never would. Um, you know, my husband is a huge reader and of fiction, and he he thinks men who talk about it's sort of that pride in not reading fiction as if it's something, you know, as if I'm a more serious person because I, I just don't have time for that kind of thing. But actually, I think fiction can often reveal things to us that do confront us and scare us. And, you know, hopefully, and I've had a lot of a lot of readers say about this book in particular that I saw myself and it wasn't pretty, you know, and I love that. That's kind of why I write. I guess to, and that's why I read a lot of the time. I want to, I want to, I don't just want to read about myself, but you know, in the in the particular is a universal. And so when I'm reading about you know Marilyn Robinson's characters, they show me things about myself. I remember years ago reading Column Tobin's book, The Master, about Henry James, and kind of marveling that how can he be writing about Henry James? when he's actually writing about me, you know, this scene is, I, I am, I understand that I am that, but I never knew that before until I read this right now. So I think fiction is, is crucial. It's a crucial way for me to understand myself and where I am and who I am in the world.
0: Is there like a great Australian novel? You know they're always talking there about the many. great American <laughs> novel. You know, is there are there a few that that I guess you think are?
1: Well, there are a lot of beloved Australian writers. So I guess the one that would immediately come to mind for me in the great Australian novel phrasing is uh, Patrick White, who is one of our only Nobel laureates for literature, and a book called The Tree of Man, which was published in I think the fifties maybe a bit later, but about kind of hardscrabble farmers, you know, um, making their way in the very unforgiving... The way that white people, white writers have written about the Australian landscape as a very unforgiving, unyielding place, um, which, you know, says something about what this country has done to Indigenous culture and uh, peoples. Um, But, yeah, Patrick White is... He, he's been dead for some time now. There's another writer called Tim Winton, who's very beloved, um, a book called Cloud Street, which continually is, is cited as Australia's favourite book, you know, when they do polls and stuff. But also contemporary writers like Helen Garner is, is an amazing nonfiction writer. She has also written fiction, who is sort of um, writes about urban life and the, especially the urban domestic lives of women. Um, and that she's probably one of our great writers, I would say.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: I can. I'm going to read from the latest book by Elizabeth Strout. Um, I, I only just read this, but her writing has influenced me for a long time. I think she's incredible, and this is from her new book called *O William*. And I'll just read it, and then I'll say why I, you know, what I get from her writing. This is the very opening of the book. I would like to say a few things about my first husband, William. William has lately been through some very sad events. Many of us have, but I would like to mention them. It feels almost a compulsion. He's 71 years old now. My second husband, David, died last year, and in my grief for him, I have felt grief for William as well. Grief is such a Oh, it is such a solitary thing. This is the terror of it, I think. It's like sliding down the outside of a really long glass building while nobody sees you. But it is William I want to speak of here. His name is William Gerhardt, and when we married, I took his last name, even though at the time it was not fashionable to do so. My college roommate said, Lucy, you're taking his name? I thought you were a feminist. And I told her that I did not care about being a feminist. I told her I did not want to be me anymore. At that time, I felt that I was tired of being me. I had spent my whole life not wanting to be me. This is what I thought then. And so I took his name and became Lucy Gerhard for 11 years, but it did not ever feel right to me. And almost immediately after William's mother died, I went to the motor vehicle place to get my own name back on my driver's license even though it was more difficult than I had thought it would be. I had to go back and bring in some court documents, but I did. I became Lucy Barton again. So I, I chose that piece. I mean, I could pretty much pull out any page of, of Elizabeth Strout's writing, but I'm really interested in these Lucy Barton books because they're so understated and so powerful at the same time. So one of the things I love about that passage is this this constant change and surprise. So she's writing about her her first husband, and then we find out she's had three husbands, but she's going back to the first husband. Um, And even though he's the subject of this story, it seems, we're, we're not talking about the past. We're talking about the present. We're not talking about the marriage. We're talking about him in this last few weeks. So there's already this real complexity in in what she's doing there. But also Elizabeth Strout has that quality that is very hard to define of immense authority. Um, There's a self-assertion in every line that she writes and she she has a very subtle narrative um, propulsion and I feel like it's through voice and through this self-assertion. And so when she says... You know, I I had to, I wanted to change my name. It was more difficult. I had to go back and do this, but I did. I became Lucy Barton again. So it sort of lands in this very strong way. And that, you know, first couple of pages, but I would just go anywhere with that voice. So I love, I love her work for that confidence in her voice.
0: Can you read something that you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Read a bit about Jude and Finn. So this is they're at the holiday house. Jude's in the kitchen, looking through the window at Finn, and kind of being appalled at his the very fact of his being there. But she's watching him. There was no flicker of recognition, even of movement, in his eyes. So he's watching her through the glass, and she's watching him. His tail lay flat and limp. There was nothing between them but a pane of glass, and she studied his face. The dark smudges of his clouded eyes brimmed with liquid, two mud pools in snow. His muzzle was grubby too, the once creamy fur stained and brown. His mouth hung open, black rubber lips slack, rippled. This was what happened to animals and to humans. It was pitiful. Drool formed behind his long yellow teeth. He shifted his weight, Staring with a terrible patience at nothing through the glass, and then in his face, Jude saw Sylvie's face appear, and from his mouth came Sylvie's sorrowful ghost breath condensing on the glass. She sat up straight in her chair. Finn, Finnie, Wendy's high voice came from the laundry along the deck, but the dog stayed staring at Jude with Sylvie's reproachful, unhappy stare. There was a place between life and death, as between waking and sleep, and one day Jude too would know that place. This came to her in Sylvie's steady animal gaze. At last, the dog lumbered to his feet, turned from Jude and limped away. So I chose that bit to read because you know what I said earlier about about Finn being this carrier of meaning for each of them and this carrier of of what an Australian writer called Amanda Laurie has called messages from another realm you know Jude Jude is a very rational person a quite controlling person you know buttoned up I think he said and But here we see this great contradiction in her with all of that rationality is starting to unravel and it's very frightening to her um, to see Sylvie in this dog's face. So she doesn't like the dog. She will certainly never tell anyone that she saw this bizarre um, apparition, what is it, in the face of the dog. But it suddenly starts revealing things about her to herself that She's not as in control as as she would wish to be. Um, and it also is, you know, a message from Sylvie in some way. So I guess I liked that piece when I, when I, when the idea of Sylvie being visible in the dog's face came to me because it it allowed me to go into that sort of dreamy, uncanny sort of space that um, I, I always like to have in a book glimpses of it
0: where do you write I
1: write mainly in two places here in my studio in Sydney in inner Sydney which it's a part of town that's very noisy (laughs) we have some very close neighbors who are great but you know the houses are really small and I live near a a shopping center Um, so there are always people coming and going there this aircraft noise there are leaf blowers it's kind of crazy it's great for going out and kind of gathering detail about the world, but it's really not so great for going into a quiet space and writing. So as often as I can, I go to this place at the coast, uh, this house that we rent, where it's very quiet. I look out at the water. There's a much longer view. You know, I can my perspective is much broader there because right here I'm looking out. At, at the roof of my house, the back of my house, which is very close. It's actually a good a good combination, I think, having these two places to work.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I go outside to either you know the natural world and again the place at the coast is is great for that. It's in um there's a national park all the way around. So beautiful bushwalks and and the ocean. Um, And at home, I go into our very tiny little garden, which completely kept me sane through the four months of lockdown that we had this year. Um, I feel like I know every single leaf in that garden. now. And I go into the kitchen, I cook, and I love to cook because it's, it's all about the body. You know, it's not about the intellect anymore. And the same with the garden. I love being in a physical space, making something beautiful, hopefully, but that nothing depends on. You know, it doesn't matter if my cake doesn't work and it doesn't matter if my garden's a bit wonky or full of weeds, but it's the, just the pure pleasure in the making that sometimes can get lost when when your making is professionalized as it is when you're a writer. And I do love the making involved in writing, but I also love to get away from that, having, having to be public about it. Who do you
0: show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a small group of very long-term writer friends, uh, sort of three or four different people, and they'll be the first ones to read my work when it's ready after a couple of years of working on a novel probably or more. And they're really great at reading something that is not finished by any stretch, but it's the conversation that we have after the reading that is really it's often very profound, actually, and we all do this for each other. Um, it's about asking questions, about going deeper into the work. It's not about saying this scene is boring and that one's wrong or whatever. It's not about critique so much as sort of discovery. So I'm very, very fortunate to have those people in my life. How have you dealt
0: with rejection? Eh,
1: not very well, <laughs> but you know, you get a lot of it as a writer. I've been very lucky generally that all, all the books I've written have been published, but I've had a lot of rejection internationally outside Australia. And, you know, it's just, I've dealt with it by understanding that it's just part of the life and it's, it doesn't mean anything terrible. It's just the way I, you know, I'm always telling younger writers to have, to normalize rejection. It's not, something that you can avoid and it's not something that you should attach too much meaning to you just you know your work will find its way if you pay attention to the work and so the best way for me to deal with rejection is to go back to my work you know while something's being rejected it's a finished work but that's the best time for me to just go back and start something else Um, because when I'm in when I'm really dug into a work all of that anxiety about the outside world and what people think of you and all of that just drops away, which is kind of why I write, I think, Um, just for that pleasure of absorption. So that's what I try to do. Just go back to the work and, you know, find, find a new way in and get absorbed again. What is your favorite word? I've been thinking about this. I don't have a favorite word because the word that is my favorite in any given moment is the word that I'm trying to get right I guess so I'm always searching for the right word a fresh word but a word that doesn't draw too much attention to itself you know in the in the scheme of a sentence or a paragraph it it has to not draw too much attention to itself while still being surprising enough to be arresting so maybe today arresting is my favorite word. Thank you so much for this time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. It's been so great to
0: talk to you after listening to you for a long time. So thank you for having me. If you liked today's show with Charlotte Wood, author of the novel The Weekend*, check out my interview with Ramona Ozobal, where we discussed her novel Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty, how we can use fear as an artist and what we inherit emotionally and monetarily from one generation to the next. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Lan Samantha Chang, Thritti Umrigar, and Jacqueline Michard. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.